A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Theasta Gates, an artist whose every gesture is transformative, whether that's in the form of social projects in his native Chicago, works transforming found materials from significant disused spaces in the city, novel presentations of collections and materials he's gathered over time, or the ceramic sculptures that were his earliest medium and remain at the heart of his work today. Theaster began his journey with clay at Iowa State University and went on to study pottery in Tokoname in Japan. The breadth of his practice today is partly explained by the fact that he then gained an MA in Fine Arts and Religious Studies from the University of Cape Town in 1998 and another in Urban Planning from Iowa State in 2006. Perhaps his best known achievement so far is the creation in 2010 of the Rebuild Foundation, a not-for-profit platform in Chicago which uses community arts programming and and cultural development to regenerate neighbourhoods in the city, and particularly on its south side. His work with the Rebuild Foundation came to international prominence in one of the landmark works at Document 13 in Kassel, Germany in 2012, where he created a project that acted as a transatlantic correspondence called 12 Ballads for Huguenot House. Here, he transformed two derelict buildings in Kassel and Chicago and reused parts of both in the rebuilding of the other. He then staged performances, he called them consecrations, in the transformed spaces with his band the Black Monks of Mississippi, who created improvised performances touching on gospel, jazz, blues, soul and other musical traditions. The Black Monks performances are some of the most spellbinding events I've ever witnessed within the art space. Alongside the Rebuild Foundation and other community projects, Theaster's always produced objects whose sales he's used to help fund his social practice work. His Civil Tapestry series features apparently abstract or minimalist reliefs that stitch together fire hoses, which of course are deeply freighted historical objects because they were used as a violent means to attempt to suppress protesters during the civil rights struggle in the 1960s. Theaster has also used tar as a medium, creating a huge variety of distinctive surfaces and textures. Again, his tar paintings belie their abstraction in that the material is a direct reference to Theaster's father's occupation as a roofer and to the communities in which he worked. He's also created scarred wall reliefs that evoke the tar-papered surfaces of Chicago roofs, but in the time-honoured universal medium of bronze. Another powerful series uses disused wooden gymnasium floors, using the markings on them to create compositions that nod to great modernist movements like constructivism and style, while being loaded with the memories both personal and cultural that are conjured by the floors and the role that they played in their original community settings. Over time, Theaster's gathered a range of collections of material that document different aspects of African-American culture. His project, Black Image Corporation, is a partial archive of the Johnson Publishing Company, the organisation behind influential magazines like Ebony and Jet, which notably created positive and glamorous image of black middle-class life, particularly during their heyday in the 1960s and 1970s. Other collections of which Theaster has come to be custodian include 60,000 glass lantern slides 
collected from the Department of Art History at the University of Chicago, the Frankie Knuckles Collection, which is the personal vinyl collection of one of the godfathers of Chicago house music, and the Edward J. Williams Collection, which features approximately 4,000 objects that feature stereotypical images of black people collected by Williams to remove their offensive imagery from public circulation. These collections form part of the Stony Island Arts Bank in Chicago, an art centre set up by Theaster that also has a cinema and an exhibition space. He uses the collections powerfully in his exhibitions. For instance, at the Whitechapel Gallery in London in 2021, the Williams Collection was among a host of historic ceramic holdings used as a historical prelude to a spectacular display of Theaster's own sculptural ceramics. And in recent years, it seems that there's an irresistible energy in Theaster's work with clay. Over time, he's honed a concept he calls Afro-Minge, which fuses Japanese philosophy and folk traditions with African-American culture. The ceramic pieces he makes are often framed by or displayed on wood and stone and bring together all manner of materials, including tar, of course. He also creates installations where the sculptures play off found materials, including, for example, the party-stained rug from the penthouse of the Johnson Publishing Company. Theaster's film, A Clay Sermon, in which we see him singing at the potter's wheel, heaving a work from a kiln and performing with the black monks, shows that the ceramic medium is intertwined in his life with sacred song, religion and community. As is the case with his exhibition at the New Museum in New York that opened in November 2022, whenever you see a Theaster Gates exhibition, you see a space transformed and challenged. And it's this with which I began our conversation. Theaster said that when he shows works in institutions, he wants to build the museum, not just have works inside it. Why is it so important for him to do that? I can remember when I was a younger artist, I thought a lot about the ways in which the institutions really would project to the public that they wanted to change, that museums wanted to be you know, more inclusive. They wanted to take bigger risks with audiences. They wanted new audiences. And for a long time, it was difficult to understand the relationship between their ambition and the methods that they would use to actually get there. And so often what would happen, especially between like 2010 and 2015, was that I would use exhibition opportunities to do this work that seemed very complicated for museums to do. You know, so the creation of a, of a gospel choir for the Milwaukee Museum of Art, that wasn't just because I needed a, a gospel choir in Milwaukee. It was because there was a whole tranche of amazing people who had never been invited to the museum and that the gospel choir would create an opportunity where they felt stake and investment in the museum and then they might come more. And so I think I was both actively critical and trying to find interesting ways within my practice to embed myself in the museum. And the interesting thing to me about the way that your work has evolved is that that work that you were just describing there alongside this sort of objecthood, this object-based practice, seems to have shifted more towards the objects. Is that fair? It is fair that when I was emerging as a practitioner, the opportunities that I had were more performance-based. They were brief encounters. They weren't whole exhibitions. And so I took the gigs that came up. And what I had to offer most was my knowledge of the history of ceramics, 
my interest in music and sound and uh, the capacity to intervene in interesting relational and social ways. And I think that there was a heyday of that kind of activity. And I found myself in the middle of words like relational practices, relational aesthetics, placemaking, but it was never my intention. It was just, those were the things that I was doing. And I think over the last five years or so, I've been able to have opportunities that evidence my interest in sculpture, in the built form, in architecture, big and small objects. I'd like to talk about the ceramics role in that, because, of course, your ceramics are deeply sculptural. Mm. But it seems to me that crucial to them is this phrase that you've used, and it's a lovely phrase, that they're made for the eternal as much as they're made for tea. Mm. And I think that's a really powerful evocation of the kind of dual function of your ceramic works. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. Not only has clay been the kind of foundation of my artistic practice, but it was also kind of the lowest of the siblings with regard to sculpture or design. And there was something about its humility and its intelligence, like the things that it taught me, that made me a, a kind of proponent of the material. And built into that intelligence, I think, has been the way in which civilizations for a very long time have needed clay in order to tell the stories of their people. And they would tell those stories not only for the living, but they were also using clay to take those stories and those lives and a person's status into the eternal realm, into the heavenly realms. They would bury soldiers. They would recreate uh, the farm. They would recreate one's servant staff. And this idea that clay could function as a kind of surrogate for life and make life better into the eternal was something that was very fascinating to me in Chinese culture, in Egyptian culture, in the varying African deity-based cultures. And it's something that, that I understand now in my own vessels and my desire to make them, that when you make a vessel, it could be for both beer or wine, and it could also be a vessel that houses the spirit or the remains of the body. And that kind of work, charged, invisible work, is something that's very, very dear to me. And you made this remarkable work for your Whitechapel Gallery exhibition in London, a film work called, it was the overall title of the show, The Clay Sermon. And that connection between the kind of feel of the material, the kind of everyday nature of the use of that material and that spiritual power was really evocatively shown in that piece and also what was wonderful was there was a dialogue with yourself there too mm. there's young you you know saying how you want to make a film about ceramics mm. and then here you are all these years later present in a film about ceramics so tell me about that well a clay ceremony first the Whitechapel was an amazing institution to work with and um, Lydia Yi my curator gave me a tremendous amount of latitude to think about clay in the broadest ways possible and this film was really, as you said, a kind of culmination of, you know, the last 20 years of my life where I never could have imagined that ceramics would be one of the through lines of my artistic practice, especially at 24 when I first made that video. But the sermon of it was attempting to also at the Archie Bray Foundation in Montana. It was trying to capture the power of 
both nature and the ways in which air and water and fire conspire together to make something alchemical happen, something bigger than itself, but also the ways in which ceramics carried its own sermonic vibe that clay had so much to offer us in terms of like fallibility and infallibility, creativity and the importance of a technical ability and the importance of inspiration. And, and I think that, that I was trying to use the material and demonstrate the reflexivity, the, the kind of broad possibilities within the material, which was not limited to what one can do in a clay studio, but how clay inspires uh, music and performance and gives you clues to how to live. And through the, the whole thing, I'm singing the song, Oh, the wind, oh, the wind, oh, the wind, oh, the wind, oh, the wind. And I think that it's me trying to summon the powers of the earth. And, and so I, I really enjoyed spending time at Archie Bray, which was also like this great historic place where um, the American potters, Rudy Altio and Peter Volkis spent a lot of time and made a kind of safe haven from the 50s, which was the moment at which we moved from kind of craft-based industry, artisanal ceramics, to the possibility of an artistic practice that is modern or contemporary. And in that film, you've spoken about that nature of place, not just the landscape, but also the building was tremendously important. And architecture, of course, is so central to what you do, even in works that may be objects. The architecture is so present, so many different forms of architecture. Yes. But it's also a complicated relationship, isn't it, with the built environment? So much of what you do relates to spaces which are no longer with us. There's a mournful quality in your engagement with architecture as well. It's true that, you know, lately I've been thinking to myself that part of the reason that I work so hard to restore buildings is because so much of the devastation and the neglect and the what feels like systematic racism that I've experienced in, in America, it plays itself out in space, you know, in black and brown communities. And often it could feel like governmental neglect or the way that racism plays out is through a kind of lack of economic investment. And so my way of writing that bad energy is to pour resources into spaces that have been neglected to try to create some act of redemption that at least would be catalytic, if not more deeply transformative. But I'm doing that absolutely for myself. Like it feels like that activity is part of the ceramic process. It's like throwing. It's like, oh, this thing is a mound. I can make it a beautiful vessel. Oh, this thing needs, it has a unrefined rocks and stones in it. Let me remove the rocks and stones that it might be a great vessel. And I feel like the west side of Chicago, the south side of Chicago, parts of Detroit, all of the projects that I've been involved in, they all have this like, oh, this is the best raw material in the world. We just have to have the technical ability and the heart to make it the best thing possible. Your show at the New Museum, again, speaks to an elegiac power. You're referring to young lords and their traces. This is a really interesting thing because you articulate in an interview with um, Massimiliano Gioni about the, how the traces are effectively the art or the, the way that you use those deities, as you call them, to sort of propel them into your practice. Can you say more about that? 
Yeah, I think that Young Lords is a kind of double entendre where I'm talking both about this early uh, 60s gang community, like a kind of a community of young people, young Puerto Ricans in Chicago who were just fed up with the way things were. They connected with a black activist community in Chicago and kind of furthered the possibilities of local support to everyday people. That was beautiful, Young Lords. But then I'm also talking about Young Lords in a kind of deified sense. Oquian Waser, Bell Hooks, Greg Tate, Virgil Abloh, you know, Sam Gilliam, my father, all of these people who we've recently lost, who have transitioned from this world, I'm speaking of them as lords, as the great intellectual, curatorial, artistic powers of this world. And their traces has to do with the kind of intimate relationships that I've had with these individuals and the ways in which not only my personal and intimate relationships, but the way that these individuals have affected people, that their practices are changed or that the curatorial community has changed, the way museums curate has changed. The impact that Oakley and Waser has had on 21st century curatorial practices will never be fully known. And so I, I wanted to take a moment and have an exhibition that celebrated the intellectual achievement of all of these people who have been dear to me. And it's a moment where I also get to have a mournful experience in honor of them. So let's begin with the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Shoji Hamada. Shoji Hamada is one of the great Japanese potters introduced to the West by Bernard Leach and did a pretty major tour around the world. He was one of the first, not only craftsmen, but a person for whom it was clear that there was an artistic intent within the craftsmanship. And um, I loved him first. And is it that sort of extraordinary technical power as well as the sort of raw power of the material that you like about it? Because it's one of the things that strikes me about that work is that there is so much beauty in it and sort of delicacy. But, you know, tapping into that very raw material that is at the fundament of all ceramic work. Absolutely. I mean, and I also feel philosophy and composition and poetry in Hamada's work, you know, so... Where you make a mark is as important as, you know, not making the mark. And the quietude alongside the intense force of the anagama or the wood kiln, that stuff was exciting to me from the moment I started making. And which historical artist do you return to the most today? This is actually a complicated question because I feel like I read a lot and I'm so deeply connected and of course, I think about Duchamp and I think about Joseph Boys and I think about Marcel Brauters. But I think the people who I quietly read the most would be Eva Hesse and Louise Bourgeois. You know, these two women who commanded sculpture in such a deep and elegant way. And they had also this kind of poetry where they seemed to be like on their own wavelength in terms of what was important. And so I, I think I would replace those three guys with, 
you know, Louise Bourgeois, Agnes Martin, and Eva Hesse. I want to talk about Eva Hesse because it seems to me that the materials that you use don't bear much comparison to those kind of very um, ephemeral materials that Hesse was using, these experimental materials in some ways. Mm. But mm. there's a sort of truth to materials in that, that she uses, but also that sort of sense of total transformation that all the time it feels like it's in movement. And I feel that very much with your work. It's, it's in a process of developing, even if it's fixed in space or on the wall or whatever. You know, Ben, I actually think that Eva and I have so much in common, in part because she was entering the kind of the Germanic post-war industrial waste fields. And she was trying to make meaning out of the things that were left over from the spoils of war technology. So in that sense, I could connect uh, Eva Hesse to like Charles and Ray Eames. And for me, I feel like my work is so much about trying to create a subtlety and simplicity and poetic generosity out of the wasteland. It's super formal sometimes, my work, and like maybe a little bit too formal. But there's something about the formalism that is speaking directly to the fact that this thing is from the wasteland and it is no longer in the wasteland. And I think that, that, that in a way, the way that I come to formalism isn't out of a political intent it's kind of like a, a dignifying attempt for the material itself. That speaks really powerfully to the way that you were working directly with Agnes Martin's little sister. Absolutely. Of course, which is this work in the Guggenheim, quite a small work. But you made a form of homage to that work, but also talked about the way that modernism exists within social and political structures or geopolitical structures. Tell me about how you took that and then turned it into your own language, if you like. When I first started to read about Agnes Martin, and I had always been a fan of her work, even before I knew her name, that there was something in the work that was extremely meditative. And it was clear that she had a sense of interiority as a form and that she could give form to her own demons, her own interiority. And, and that was really attractive to me because I was constantly giving form to my exteriorities. I didn't have an interior life. And in fact, I think, you know, the reason I have a band called the Black Monks of Mississippi is because I'm constantly trying to get to a place that is more internal. So in that sense, Little Sister was an attempt at honoring what may not be so evident, especially in this moment where it feels like there's a pressure for Black artists to only make work about the Black subject. Is it possible for us to also make space for the ways in which art history is affecting us? Artists from all over the world have gone into making me who I am. And I think that these moments of citation are extremely important, especially when uh, the art world is compressing us to be reductive in our sensibilities. And it strikes me that when I look at your works, which are clearly in relationship, sometimes explicit, sometimes more obliquely with modernism, what you've just said is kind of writ large in those kind of works. It seems like you're a fan of modernism, but you're also exploring that relationship that you have with that. And if you like a kind of broader cultural relationship with that material. Yeah, one of the things that will be evident in this exhibition at the New Museum is the role that the cross plays in the sculptural work. And... As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the use of the cross by Tarkovsky and Andrei Rublev and the ways in which cinema has 
portray the histories of religious power. And in this Tarkovsky film, what happens when the religious sign maker is no longer necessary because of revolution? So the ways in which uh, suprematism, you could say, co-opted the cross for social and political reasons, right? So in this sense, if we're talking about modernism or about formal form, in a way reducing everything else so that the formal form could live, I think that I'm very interested in both the ways in which the history of art has tried to make some narratives great and others minor. And my ability by digesting deeply modernism, how I could then take those minor subjects and make them major. And so I decided that I would lean into my interest in suprematism and my interest in Malievich and Lisitsky and, and alongside the Black Baptist Church and the ways in which the crosses have all of these complicated meanings. And so in that sense, I am treating the cross as the beginning of a kind of modernist attempt. It's like, oh, there's three guys on the cross. The other two aren't so important. Let's focus on this one. And that from the, the most base stories of Christianity, you find reduction as a way of elevating some and reducing others. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. And it adds to that sort of sense of the hallowed nature of modernism, the chapel-like spaces that we put them in, right? Absolutely. In, in the exhibition, I lean into that hallowed possibility. And at the same time, there's something about it that is uneasy. And I hope that that is evidenced when people see the show. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? So when I was thinking about this, I immediately thought Jennifer Packer one of my favorite painters. And then alongside Jennifer Packer, I was immediately like thinking about Amy Sherrill's show last week and seeing Jordan Castile, you know, seeing the sisters. You know, I think about Derek Adams here in New York, you know, a really dear friend of mine. So that's kind of one cluster. Then when I think about Lorna Simpson, how can I think about Lorna without thinking about Carrie Mae Weems, without thinking about Deb Willis, without them moving between art and curation, you know? My deep love at the center of my heart is a gentleman named Martin Purrier, for whom I couldn't ask for a better example of artistic focus and deep mentorship and critical judgment over a life of making. And I, I think Martin hits the spot in the middle. And then I remember hearing for the first time Martin Purrier speak at the Art Institute and he said, well, I can't think about my practice without thinking about Noguchi and Brancusi, you know. Then when I have a rough day, I call Glenn Ligon. Sometimes I just need Glenn to say, oh, yeah, it's going to be OK. It'll be fine, you know. And then there are all these young folk, Bradford Young, Leslie Hewitt, Turquoise Dyson. It's impossible, Ben, you know what I mean, <laughs> to do this. You know, I have a deep and abiding love for the work of Lynette Yadamboachi. Mm. And when I think about Lynette, then I think about Chris Ophelia. You know, when I think about Chris Ophelia, yeah. I think about David Ajay. I think about Peter Doig. I'm always thinking about Matthew Barney. He's a very dear, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I think about Matthew Barney, I think weirdly about uh, Sterling Ruby. You know, when I think about Sterling Ruby, it takes me to the name Latoya Ruby Frazier. So in that sense, there's a web. And, I, and, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give honor to this beautiful life that I feel so fortunate to have where I can call friends and say, hey, what are you up to? 
you know? So I, I think, in short, Martin Purrier and Jennifer Packer are like on varying sides of living, varying sides of contemporary. But all of the names that I've named, I mean, I'm just proud to be in this number. And I know that you and Arthur Jaffer have that kind of calling each other out thing. And that's sort of, is it kind of a moral support as well as a kind of sharing ideas or whatever? It's, it's, it's about, you know, both being artists, both being in this moment, both grappling with what it is to be an artist to a certain degree. Well, you, you know, you have access to the backroom knowledge, you know. It's almost like I don't think of Arthur as an artist. I think of him as a brother. There's not a, a greater intellectual sparring partner. You know, if I can digress again, AJ is connected to Carrie James Marshall and Fred Moten. When I think about Fred and Moten, then I'm back in this world of Sadia Hartman and Christina Sharp. Get to Christina Sharp, then I'm thinking about Tina Camp. When I think about Tina Camp, then I'm thinking about Huey Copeland and Krista Thompson. These are the great scholars of this moment talking about the complexities of why Black artists make. AJ gets the daily call, you know, and he has a very interesting way that he'll show up in my exhibition because he wrote a beautiful, I'm going to call it a eulogy for Virgil Abloh that he recited at the memorial for Virgil Abloh uh, at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And I asked AJ if he would be comfortable with me sharing this eulogy in my exhibition as one of the traces of the young lords. And he gave me full permission. We cry together. You know, and, and so I just want to acknowledge how important Greg Tate was to Arthur Jaffa. And Greg's name comes up almost every conversation we have. So thank you for knowing that. You talk about the network there. I'm curious to know what you have on your studio wall. You know, what are your points of reference? Do you have permanent memorials, if you like, on your wall? Do you have artworks that are always around you or are you in a constant shifting language of images? So when I first read this question, I thought about pinups and, you know, I have this small collection of Johnson publishing images that I received from Linda Johnson Rice. I have a series of those pinups pinned up on my wall and they're really beautiful and some are more formally framed. I mentioned the name Tony Lewis, a Chicago artist. I have some of Tony's Lewis up. It's always inspiring me because I think he's one of the great kind of contemporary modernists, you know. There's a couple young people in Chicago, Nate Young and Bethany Collins, you know, two dear friends of mine in Chicago. And I, I love that I have their work up. Then I have weird stuff, you know, like David Ajay does these, you know, amazing, you know, these episodes where he shares, you know, his travels. And he's, he's thinking about very historic, quote unquote, primitive architecture. That stuff is all up around my space. Because of my relationship with Mucha Prada, I'm also thinking about fashion a lot. So like I have pictures of feathers and animals and decor and skins alongside a material library that's growing and a little bit sophisticated. So, you know, I have like a spider. Last week when I was in London, I was playing with my friend, a young six-year-old named Jack and his little sister, and we were making pictures of spiders, and we were thinking about Louise Bourgeois because Louise Bourgeois is Jack's favorite artist. And so we were making some spiders, and, and those things are up on my wall as well. It's a myriad of things, yeah. Let's talk about the Johnson Publishing 
archive because the way that you've brought that into my world I'm really conscious of because I hadn't encountered I mean I've seen examples of ebony and jet in the past etc etc but the way that you have brought that material through in so many different ways and just in terms of the magazines themselves but then as you say in terms of this extraordinary archive which you only have like the the tip of the iceberg actually right Mm. in terms of that's right the collection that you have as part of the um, black image corporation so tell me about that because it's in a way you're a custodian of this material and you're a kind of transmitter of this material right so you know when i first met lindy johnson rice It was at a moment when the organization was transitioning from an active organization to more like a historic museum. And I felt like there was this moment where I could, before the transition happened, I could celebrate the life of this organization and have a redemptive and dignifying moment in the same way that we were talking about architecture earlier. And Linda Johnson Rice was kind enough to license the rights of 20,000 images to me for which I then created a small entity called the Black Image Corporation. The goal was to actually act like John Johnson and Eunice Johnson, to be a temporary image corporation that said to the world, look at the beauty of Black people, look at how these images are so fresh and contemporary. And they were also trying to celebrate the work of two photographers who lived in Chicago, Isaac Sutton, and Monetta Sleet, amazing street photographers who also had professional practices, right? So I think that in the same way that we're talking about the honorific, or in this case, the corporation as monument, or the achievements, you know, Black achievement as something that is monumental for the American experience, I was super, super invested in that and in trying to demonstrate how we could enjoy the play of the archive. So in a way, I felt a little bit like Andre Malraux, you know, like I I thought like, oh, this could also be a kind of a pseudonym for a new practice is that I could dress like a dandy, put on a tie and stage the black image in new and interesting ways. And I have a feeling that that'll be an ongoing project in that. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 125 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to Bloomberg Connects are leading US institutions as diverse as the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, Missouri. They join dozens of other museums, galleries and foundations across the states, including the Mississippi Museum of Art, where Theaster Gates recently presented a major work in a group show, A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. If you download the app, the digital guide to the Mississippi Museum includes an in-depth feature on that touring show, with images of the works and audio descriptions. Among much else, you can also explore the museum's art garden and listen to mindful art moments, bringing awareness to your body and breath as you tour the sculptures. You can also find the Serpentine Gallery's Guide on the app, where you can explore Theaster's Black Chapel in depth alongside the full archive of Serpentine Pavilions. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? 
I spend a lot of time these days at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And, you know, my band was just there a couple weeks ago making music in the ceramic section of the V&A. And, uh, you know, looking at kind of 12th century China and Mayalica from Spain and contemporary works uh, by some of the names that I mentioned earlier, including William State Murray and, and uh, Julian Stair and Edmund DeWall. And, and so I, I like a good encyclopedic situation. But, you know, in Chicago, I spend time at the, uh, Julius Caesar. My friend Tony Lewis is one of, the, one of the partners. It's a small gallery. I love it a whole lot. When I'm in London, I hit all the big boys. You know, when I'm in L.A., I hit the big girls. I'm very proud of the program that Sean Regan has, you know. But these kind of younger spaces, I think they are going to be very, very important for the future of artistic practice because they haven't gone big box yet. I think they have at heart the lives of the artists who they work with. And so a lot of times I'm just on the street allowing my eyes to be the guide and I may not even know the names of these galleries or the roster. I'm just kind of moved by the work that's happening on the street. And in terms of museums, it's so interesting the way that you think about them in terms of because you are a collector of collections, as it were. You have a really interesting take, I think, on the way that museums can function in, in terms of people's everyday lives rather than as grand, state-funded receptacles of great human knowledge there's a sense in which you want museums to be something which every one of us can relate to in a very direct way but also not just in an intellectual way in a very hands-on material way right Mm -hmm. absolutely this is also why like you look at a museum like Kunstmuseum Basel one of the big state institutions you know I had an amazing show with Sam Gilliam kind of just above me and then the Kunstmuseum Basel is offset by the Kunsthalle a non-collecting space where they're able to do much more daring things. And another name that I want to shout out is Frank Stella. You know, it's like Frank Stella has a show at the Kunsthalle and then the Kunstmuseum acquires the work from the Kunsthalle, you know, and it's like a way of introducing great artists to the world. I love that. But then I think about things like Prospect in New Orleans, The Last Documenta, you know, like these moments that are, they're not museums, but they represent a deep current in the climate of the artistic world. And that every five years or every two years, or every year, the biennial structures and the triennial structures, they allow for a moment of jubilee where all of the things that we thought were exact and true and perfect a new curatorial team can upend those things. And so I really think that the power of this moment is not just our museums and galleries, but these other time-based projects that happen that then give us a different cut of the artistic life happening now. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? The first time that I met Martin Purrier, and I went from a spectator and a kind of a lover of art history to a friend in about 12 minutes. This encounter with Martin Purrier made me think art is worth doing for one's entire life. Was there anything in particular he said to you? Was it him giving you advice as such? Or was it just the experience of seeing him in the studio or, you know, realising that there was a sort of possibility in just being, as it were, as you say, being an artist? 
Yeah, on stage, he admitted that he was worried about me. And then he said he prays for me time, that I would take the time to reflect and rest. And he just said, I pray for you time. And uh, it was really a very, very special moment. Time is such an important thing for artists, isn't it? Because in your development of a practice, especially when you're an in-demand artist, an artist that is showing across the world and so on, it was really instructive to me that I read that you said about during the pandemic, because shows disappeared, suddenly there you were in the studio and you did in six months what you'd normally be able to do in three years, you know. Again, time was a crucial factor there, right? Yeah, and I, I learned so much through the COVID moment about how much... Uh, agency I have in the way time works and that I shouldn't need a pandemic uh, to give me time back. But in fact, I could just choose to make time. And I think in some ways, you know, that that's kind of where I am with the practice these days. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? I really like Njibulo Ndebele. The time that I spent in South Africa was very important to me. And he wrote a book called uh, fools and Other Stories, in Tozaka Shange, Gwendolyn Brooks. Right now, my favorite writer, you know, in terms of a certain kind of poetry, is Fred Moten. Because Fred has a funny way of moving between heavy psychological analysis and cultural reflection and simple stories about his aunt's front porch there's the same sort of gravitas in, in all of it, right? So even from the intimate to the kind of global, as it were, there's the same gravitas and weight to a degree. Yeah, I think Fred, in our conversations, both public and private, you know, he's always been such a, a relentless thinker and his work is with me all the time and on my mind all the time. Let's talk about one of the young lords, as it were, in your new museum show, because Bell Hooks is such a significant figure. She is the subject of a new work of yours. And again, rather like Martin Perrier, you had a seminal meeting with her, which was a transformative experience for you, right? Yeah, Bell invited me and Rick Lowe to Kentucky to visit her in Berea. And initially, I think she wanted us to help her think about her papers and her archive and this institute that she was creating and, and the ways that Berea could become a, a place that others would want to come to over time because her papers were there. She intentionally didn't give everything to a more major national institution. So in that sense, she was thinking about place and where she's from and placemaking, you know. But on that trip, uh, we, it ended up being much more personal and casual and we talked about some of those things, but we really just spent time together. And she was already dealing with illness. And right before I left, she went to a, a cabinet and pulled out this bell. And she said, you know, at the Astro, I, I collect bells and I want you to have this. It's a very small bell, you know, like a service bell. And uh, man, you know, that thing just touched my heart, you know, and... Just feeling her love and having as a reference her writing about love was very, very touching for me. And so that bell is one of the few material reminders that I have of that encounter. 
And in that sense, it has more charm. It has Bell imbued in it. And I think that's in part what this exhibition is, is all about. And that links us very neatly onto our next question, which is about music and which music or other audio you listen to while you're working. Tell us, what do you have on in the studio? When I'm making, it's Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack. You know, it's Nina and Aretha. It's more ballad based than it is like driving. I like hearing voices that live above the music, you know, and they kind of excite me. When I'm writing, I can't have voices because they get inside my words, you know. And so I either have to have no lyrics or I have to have lyrics in languages that I don't know. <laughs> and so when I'm writing, I tend to lean on uh, Youssef Latif, Coleman Hawkins, Ornette Coleman. And then there are some young guns, Makai McRaven, Ben Lamar Gay. They live between new music and experimental jazz and sound, noise, you know? And so I'm, I'm super interested in that. But like, there's a British cat that I love. I always love soul singer named Omar. Uh, yeah. You know, I think about Omar all the time, you know. And, uh, he's so underrated. Omar is so underrated. He's so underrated. And I remember when he hit in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was just such a vibe. It's a pretty wide range. For a while, I was, I was listening to a lot of Rachmaninoff and thinking about dirges and, you know, spirituals and vespers. I like music, so I'll go anywhere, you know. And when I was in Japan this, this summer for this project that I did with the Aichi Triennial, I brought a collection of albums that I have that were owned by this potter named Marva Jolly. And Marva collected soul music. So it was like the spinners, the OJs, you know. So all summer I was spinning that in Tokonami, Japan. And I think the Japanese really loved hearing Betty Carter, early Ella. I think what I'm trying to say to you, Ben, is that like there are all these things that they harken back to uh, my childhood in a very black experience, you know, like a very black American experience. So like Luther Vandross was playing in the house all the time. Like, you know, my sisters, they were Luther fans, you know. And then a, a little bit later, it was like, you know, Rick James, and, you know. <laughs> But then there was this other side where I've always been artistically and intellectually curious. So I was also like, right now I'm listening to Russian punk from this collection of punk that I have from a friend, Robert Byrd. So I, I just feel like, you know, what's great about music is like the visual arts. It gives you a sense of a moment. Yeah, but I'm, I'm listening to like Donny Hathaway and Nina Simone's in heavy rotation right now. You talked about Marva Jolly's record collection there. Again, in terms of your archive, you've got a whole body of record collections which all speak so powerfully to particular moments and particular geographies and cultures, etc. Tell me more about those because it's, it's an extraordinary body of collections now. Yeah, you know, when I got this call, after we announced that we had the Johnson Publishing Library, so these 26,000 books, I got a cold call from a guy named uh, Freddie. Frederick. And Frederick was the executor of Frankie Knuckles' estate. And uh, he called me and said, hey, I saw what you're doing with, with the Johnson books. Can you come and look at these albums or look at these things? 
And I went and there was Frankie Knuckles' album archive, his personal album archive. And he had kind of since switched to a lot of digital performance. So when he would travel, he was traveling with, with computers more than he was with his albums. But there were his albums from like the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s. And so when we took possession of the albums, I thought, I don't know how I became the person that was trusted and that got this phone call, but it felt like something had changed in like what I'm supposed to do every day. You know, like the album collection was so important that I knew that it couldn't just be my private album collection. And so I kind of posited it inside of Rebuild so that we could then program those albums and party and kick it. Because, you know, the thing I always say, like, if you have a house music collection, the best amplification of that collection is the club. It's not like sitting in like a special collections table and listening to it on headphones. You got to jack. You got to jack your body, you know? And, and so I feel like we're also learning how to be good stewards of these collections. And one way of being a good steward is making sure that the world gets to hear them. Let's move on to your own music, because I've been lucky enough to see the Black Monks a couple of times now. One of the things I'm really struck by when I'm listening to that music is that obviously gospel is a kind of natural source that everybody who's there will see in the work. But it seems to me as it's kind of a collage in the same way, same way that you've talked about so many different cultural forms in just in this conversation. I'm aware that within this improvisation, you're calling on so many wonderfully rich sources of information and sonic information, if you like. How improvised is it? Do you sit before you perform and say, should we involve this, that or the other artist or this tradition? Or Tell me about how that works. Yeah, so we don't rehearse and we don't spend a lot of time in pre-discussion because we found that that sometimes jinx what we do. Instead, we treat all the performances as practice. What we may do is determine a beginning point. The reason that that feels important is because it is also unreasonable to say that we don't rehearse because for those of us that grew up in the black church, you could say we were learning the songbook independently of each other. And so we have all of this wellspring of great music to pull from. So if I start singing Sweet Hour of Prayer or prepare me to be a sanctuary or something. If I want to go straight and do that as like a straight gospel song, my guys can follow that. If we want to get weird with it, well, we have Michael Avery and Ben Lamar Gay, two of the most exceptional creatives I've ever met in my life. And they are adding noise, percussion, coronet, electronic toothbrushes. <laughs> like they're playing anything. And that kind of use of noise it reminds me so much of the history of the AACM in Chicago, the kind of Sun Ra. Like, they're from that lineage, right? There's a, a strand of new black music that moves through the work. So you have funk, gospel, soul, noise, punk, all trying to conform into something that's supposed to be minimal, reductive, restrained. And it's this tension between great music that is restrained or modern, and then the fact that we are fucking postmodern. <laughs> that we, we can throw it all to our attention and leave nothing behind and make great music. And it is great music.
So what other media influence your work? You know, yesterday I was talking to somebody about Josiah McElhaney and thinking about this glassblower or a trained glassblower who is also interested in the kind of outer dimensions, spirituality. You know, so I think that glass is in there. Fashion is obviously and apparently affecting me. But I think especially with these new tar paintings, no one would have ever imagined how much I really revere painters and painting. I would never call myself a painter, even though I'm making two-dimensional work. I'm making two-dimensional work as a sculptor and a roofer. It feels adjacent to painting, but the preoccupations that I have as a roofer are slightly different than a painter's. And subjectivity is different. I'm not actually after subject as much as I am after meaning. And in that sense, the tar paintings are still in a zone of the honorific and the memorial. And then they're progressing out of that into a language of my own. In that sense, the torch becomes an extension of that pyromagnetic activity that I'm so drawn to as in ceramics. So I, I think, yeah, painting, fashion, glass. And then there's the truth that, and, and this is not exactly media specific, but there's something about people who do things excellently. And Carrie James Marshall talks about mastery a lot. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when I'm in Japan, what I'm observing is that, you know, there's a core of people, friends of mine in Japan who have dedicated their lives to like one thing. So in some cases, it's not the media that is moving me. It's the dedication that people have toward their gift and the pursuit of excellence within their ability. And I, I think I'm most in love with that. You mentioned Tarkovsky earlier on. This is extraordinary thing, again, through being given an archive. And it's the Robert Byrd archive you mentioned, Robert, earlier on. It seems to be, again, you know, you've been chosen to be the custodian of this archive. And it seems to have prompted a whole new realm of language and subject matter within your work. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, the truth is, Ben, I was always interested in, like, Russian cosmism or... I was always looking at theosophy and I was very interested in constructivism, but also like that great moment of Russian propaganda where the typography and the, and the activity that was happening in Russian type and, and propaganda and posters, like that stuff was, it was turning me on, you know? <laughs> and so to have a kind of cursory knowledge of Russian art from the 20s through like Ilya and Amelia Kabakov. I felt like there's something in this work where when you have the problem of an oppressive state and the artist is forced to remain within a, an oppressive regime with conflicting attitudes about what constitutes a full life, how does one eke out a practice when the state puts you at risk of death or imprisonment. And I feel like what, what happened is that there were a group of creatives who had to become at least duplicitous in their position. They had to find ways to be themselves within the state and then a more true version of their political, spiritual, social, intellectual selves. How do you have dissidents 
and difference of opinion when you know that you can go to prison for life or worse, right? And I feel like in some ways, these examples have become very important examples to me around like what the work is doing. Like when people read the work, they're like, oh, like they imagine like, oh, Theaster is trying to align himself with the white boys of the 1960s. Like, you know, there's there's an homage to Frank Stella. I'm thinking about, you know, Carl Andre. I'm thinking about all the boys. But that's one read. And the beauty of form is that form allows you to say as much as you want and signify, but it also allows you to hide and disguise and interrogate in more nuanced ways. And it requires either a closer read or a deeper relationship or a deeper understanding of the cross. So if all the cross triggers are the negativities of Christianity, well, that's a cursory read of the cross. And I, I think that that suprematism actually showed me that, that there is so much at stake and so much more could be loaded into these forms, into these monuments. And I want to load them as much as I can. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Uh, soaking in my bathtub. <laughs> I have a copper. It's probably a hundred gallon tub. It used to be a, a French cheese vat. And we put a hole in it and it's my soaking tub. I think the onsen, the hammam, soaking is a necessary ritual in my life. And do you do it at the start of the day before you work or the end of the day when you get back from work? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Um, I'd like to live with one of Brancusi's birds. That's a lovely choice. Calm, beauty, but so much depth and meaning, yeah. And lastly, what's art for? Art is for healing. Fiesta, thank you very much. Thanks so much. The Astigates, Young Lords and Their Traces is at the New Museum in New York until the 5th of February 2023. Vestment, an exhibition of the new series of tar paintings or torchworks informed by Russian modernism that Theaster referred to, is at the Gagosian Gallery in New York until the 23rd of December. And the group show, A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is at the Baltimore Museum of Art in the US until the 29th of January 2023. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Theastergate. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.